Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 13 of Malachi 2. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, and that going from this sanctuary out into your world, that we would uh, not just hear and forget, but that we would hear and obey and apply this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So as with many of the minor prophets and the prophets, the major prophets and any of the prophets, the prophets indict the people of their sins and present before them the evidence of those sins. And the indictment of the prophet Malachi against the people of Israel continues. And Israel's sins are being, are being pointed out. They're being brought to light. They're being discussed by the prophet. And as is always the intent of the work of the prophets, the hope is that Israel would repent and return to the Lord. That's the hope of the prophets. That's what God sends prophets to accomplish, is repentance and restoration. That work continues today in the church. Each of us individually We are exhorted to examine ourselves and urged on by those who preach the word of God, which is profitable for for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so the work, the, the prophetic work still goes on in the church through the preached word. But always keep in this in mind whether we are thinking corporately or individually. This passage came to mind from 2 Peter 2. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command it handed on to them 
It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. It is the kindness of God that Israel would receive warning after warning not to return to their vomit. It's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that you too would receive warning not to return to your wallowing in the mire, going back to the pit of mud. Right? The prophets were assigned this task until John the Baptist, then the apostles, then the elders ordained in the church. Right? Guard your heart so that you do not follow the example of Israel who hardened their hearts against the warnings of God the warnings of the prophets, and despised God's kindness. Remember that previously Malachi had condemned the people for marrying the daughters of a foreign god, is the way that it's stated there. The the priests, the people had married the daughters of a foreign god. Their marriages with foreign women against the law of God indicated the more heinous sin that the hearts of the priests and the hearts of the people were happier with worshiping false gods than they were with worshiping Yahweh and his commandments. And so we, we, as we go through the rest of this passage in today's passage, we have to keep that bigger picture in mind, okay, that they had been marrying foreign women And that marriage indicates how far they had fallen away from Yahweh and how much they wanted to serve the gods of the nations. In our our passage, a behavior of the people of Israel, particularly against the priests, is described and condemned. Um, The prophet writes, this is another thing you do, which is, that's just pretty intense language. You know what? And here's another thing you do, right? You go through all these things with your kids, this, 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 or you're a boss to employ. You know, you do this, this, this. And here's another thing you do. And you know at that point you're going down, right? This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Calvin makes the point here that what should have filled the temple was not self-pitying tears of the priests, but the praises of God. They should have been praising God. Right? The people led by the priests should have rejoiced in all the blessings of God. They should have given him thanks, but instead of this, they approached the altar with, with self-pity, with tears, with groaning, with great show of emotion. Why? Because they thought God was severe. They thought God was severe. Remember all of the questions in the face of God's rebukes that that come before this. How have you loved us? Right? How have we despised your name? And of course, for their dishonoring of God's name, God told them that he would wipe refuse on their faces and expose them to shame. The shame of their own sins. Right? But remember, that action of God was in response to their stubborn hard-heartedness, their turning to other gods, their disdainfully sniffing at the table of the Lord. But they considered in all of that that God was being too harsh in response to them. They considered God 
and his punishment was too heavy. As Cain told the Lord, and this makes me think of the parable of the talents, right? For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more, but he received the one talent. He who received the one talent right, went away, dug a hole in the ground, and laid his master's money there, hid his master's money. And you remember why he did that. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he who has an abundance, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, notice how the man given the one talent had a notion that his master was a hard man. A hard man. And applying the parable to God himself, there are many who believe that God is a hard God. That God is, is hard. God is harsh. God is, is amazingly pointed in his anger, and particularly toward me, that his disposition is one of constant anger and exacting vengeance. But the testimony of Scripture is repeatedly that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Yet like Israel during the time of Malachi, there are many of us who respond to God's providence, like the financial losses that may hit us, or the sickness and disease with which we are afflicted, or the destruction of all we own, perhaps in a, in a natural disaster, we, we respond to that with thought that God is indeed too hard. Too hard. I mean, it doesn't even take major things like that. It's like somebody, somebody called my son a, a name, and I think God's too hard in disciplining me that way. Right? We, like Israel, cover the altar with our tears. 
self-pitying tears, and we, and we refuse to give thanks and sing his praises. Has that been your disposition lately? Has that been the way that you have been disposed toward God? Have you forgotten how gracious God has been toward you? Have you forgotten how gracious a holy God has been towards you, a sinful man, woman, or child? Have you forgotten the cost of your redemption by the death of Jesus Christ? Right? If so, you're acting like apostate Israel. Right? You're forgetting your spouse, Jesus Christ. And notice that the priests in Malachi are weeping. They're weeping, they're pouring out their tears upon the altar because it says God no longer regarded the, the offering or accepts it with favor from their hand. Remember, they disdainfully sniffed at the altar. And they offered upon the altar against the God's commands blemished animals. They liked, they liked to give their harsh, exacting God the bad parts of their flock. Animals with skin diseases and broken legs and blind eyes. That's what they gave to God. If he's going to be harsh, we may as well give him what's harsh from our flock. Right, And then, now they are weeping because God hates their sacrifices and will not accept them. It's ridiculous. Both the harshness of their hearts and the disobedience of their blemished sacrifices disturbed God. Truly, out of what was in their hearts came the quality, the actual dismal and disrespectful quality of their offerings. And then another of those questions, yet you say, for what reason? In other words, why doesn't God accept our offerings? For what reason? Why does he no longer accept what comes from our hands? Answer, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, and this passage is really hard. Let me tell you that. None of the commentaries agree on this and some go in weird directions, and, and I'll, I, by God's grace, I'll go my weird direction. In other words, this, this verse means, You, Israel, have not remained faithful to God, but have taken many wives. You haven't remained faithful to me, God is saying. You have taken many wives. Again, to explain this, this would be like an, an adulterous wife who has gone after many other men, wondering why her husband will not love her and accept her love. Right? Israel weeps on the altar, wondering why God won't accept our sacrifices, but meanwhile is committing adultery by preferring the gods of the nations around them. They have become the wife who cries and weeps and gets emotional, wondering why her true husband is angry with her for her 45 other unions. Right? There's a shamelessness to Israel in crying at the altar when they had thrown off God for idols. And so the depth now, think of the depth of the bond between God and his people. It's wrapped up in that phrase that we see in verse 14. He says the bond between himself and his people is like the bond between a man and the wife of his youth. Right? Calvin says on this, They forsook wives whom they ought to have regarded with the tenderest love as they had married them when they were young. 
right? And sticking with the interpretation that I believe makes sense of this passage, God had bound himself by his covenant choice with the nation Israel. They were married. Yahweh and Israel were married. Then we come to verse 15, which every commentator said was very perplexing. So we've gone from perplexing to very perplexing. If we keep with the theme of God's covenanted love with Israel, I think we can make sense of the verse. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit, it says. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Okay, so what does that mean? It means there are those who have remained faithful. There are those with the Spirit at work in them. They have not sought to marry foreign wives, and thereby they proclaim that they, um, they despise foreign gods, and so they have remained faithful to God Almighty. Then, and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Some think here that this refers to Abraham and his putting away of Hagar. I think, again, that it refers to the marriage covenant between Yahweh and Israel. The purpose of the union, so to speak, was to create offspring for God, right? In this sense, it may refer to Abraham, who was to be, by God's blessing, a father to the nations, nations who would be faithful, faithfully married to God and would produce worshipers of God. The fruitfulness of their union would be demonstrated in the covering of the earth with faithful children of God. But here, Israel instead determined that they would divorce Yahweh. And this whole passage culminates in the husband shouting, for I hate divorce. And not only do I hate divorce, but I also hate him who covers his garment with wrong or with violence. In other words, the one who clothes himself with violence and is violent or wrong or shame, un, unfaithful to the one he should love. Right now, it may seem strange that throughout this passage, I've essentially depicted God as the wife and Israel as the husband. And yes, that's awkward and not at all the analogy that scripture uses elsewhere, but If this passage is merely talking about the wives that these Israelites had married and not the unfaithfulness of the people as a whole to the covenant made with Yahweh, the expression, I hate divorce, makes no sense. Right? It makes sense if the people are divorcing Yahweh. It makes little sense if it refers to the foreign wives the people are marrying because of this. Ezra, a contemporary of Malachi, had this to say about those relationships with foreign wives. What is advocated by Ezra? Divorce! He tells the people to put away those wives. If God were to now say in response to the infidelity that he hates divorce, it makes no sense. Right? It seems they're repenting and their repentance is leading to divorce. And it's a good thing in God's eyes. Ezra 9.10 says, now our God... What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering in to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. 
So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the people who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for you have, been left, in a, you have left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Now it goes on from there. So he's saying, we've been guilty. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. That's like they're going and saying, we need to divorce our wives. Our foreign wives. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the council of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. Last paragraph. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives." Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. So it seems that God, through the priests, is advocating for divorce, right? And yet here in this passage, if we're just going to apply it to these foreign relations and not to the covenant relation that God has to Israel, it makes no sense that God would say, I hate divorce, unless he's speaking of his own marriage, He's speaking of his own marriage, and Israel is divorcing him. Israel is divorcing him by going after these wives. So all of that to say that divorce, that putting away of foreign wives who worship foreign gods and who drag their husbands into that worship, seems to be acceptable to God. Why would he proclaim, I hate divorce, if he were calling the people to divorce their foreign wives? 
So in the end, I think the passage has to do with that relationship between God and his people. They had divorced him and gone after a foreign god. He hates that. He is a jealous God who will not share his affections with others. He will not share his affection with others. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on your funnels of your forehead. You shall wipe them on the doorposts of your home and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord, your God, and you shall worship him and swear by him. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord, your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. So God is a jealous God, and his people are are divorcing him. And he says, I hate divorce. I hate your infidelity. I hate your wickedness against me. And finally, the passage ends with, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Take heed to your spirit. Do not forsake the Lord. Do not turn your back on the covenant-keeping God. Do not cast a longing eye to the world and envy the wicked and then by that divorce God so that you may have multiple wives, right? The passage about our faithfulness to a faith... The passage is about our faithfulness to a faithful God. Israel despised that God as a harsh God and therefore determined that the gods of the nations... We're much happier. We're much easier to deal with. Much more fulfilling gods to serve. So she left the wife of your youth and went after newer models. There's this letter that um, that uh, Tim Bailey shared by Samuel Rutherford, and he was applying it to uh, the loss of a, a stillborn child in his family. And yet, listen to how it applies to this. This. This idea of being unfaithful to God by, by, having, by breaking covenant with God. Listen to this. So it was written by Samuel Rutherford, who's an old dead dude, pastor. And he um, was writing to Lady Kenmure on the occasion of the death of her infant daughter. He writes, Madame, saluting your ladyship with grace and mercy from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, I was sorry at my departure, leaving your ladyship in grief, and would be still grieved at it if I were not assured that you have one with you in the furnace whose visage is like unto the Son of God. I am glad that you have been acquainted from your youth with the wrestlings of God, 
knowing that if you were not dear to God and if your health did not require so much of him, he would not spend so much physic upon you. All the brethren and sisters of Christ must be conformed to his image and copy in suffering. And some do more vividly resemble the copy than others. Think, madame, that it, it is a part of your glory to be enrolled among those whom one of the elders pointed out to John. These are they which come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You have lost a child. Nay, she is not lost to you who is found to Christ. She is not sent away, but only sent before, like unto a star, which going out of our sight doth not die and vanish, but shineth in another hemisphere. We see her not, yet she doth shine in another country. If her glass was but a short hour, what she wanted of time that she hath gotten of eternity. And ye have to rejoice that you know now some some plenishing up in heaven. Build your nest upon no tree here. For ye see God hath sold the forest to death, and every tree whereupon we would rest is ready to be cut down to the end we may fly and mount up and build upon the rock and dwell in the holes of the rock. Now listen to this phrase. What you love besides Jesus, your husband, is an adulterous lover. That's Israel. Israel had thousands of adulterous lovers and had left God, the covenant-keeping God. Whatever, what you love beside Jesus, your husband, is an adulterous lover. It will fail you. She will fail you. He will fail you. But God will not. Jesus will not. He goes on, he says, Now it is God's special blessings to Judah that he will not let her find her pass in following her strange lovers. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her pass. And she shall follow after her lovers, but shall not overtake them. Hosea 2. O thrice happy Judas, when God builded, buildeth, a double stone wall betwixt her and the fire of hell. The world and the things of the world, madame, is the lover ye naturally affect beside your own husband Christ. The hedge of thorns and the wall which God builds in your way to hinder you from this lover is the thorny hedge of daily grief, loss of children, weakness of body, iniquity of time, uncertainty of estate, lack of worldly comfort, fear of God's anger for old, unrepented of sins. What lose ye if God twist and plate the hedge daily thicker? God be blessed, the Lord will not let you find your pass. Return to your first husband. Do not weary, neither think that death walketh towards you with a slow pace. And so he goes on and he just talks about all the afflictions that you suffer are meant to bring you closer to God and hedge you in. Right, but, but if it's pleasure you live for, if, you, if it's going after the world, God will shout at you that he hates your unfaithfulness. And as you, as you suffer things, as God brings providential difficulties in your life, like loss of children or diseases, it's very tempting at that point to say, okay, God, enough. You are too harsh. I'm going to go serve other gods, other gods that will allow me to just enjoy the few remaining days that I have in this life. 
And that's all a lie of the devil because there are no, no one created in the image of God has but a few days left. They all have eternity in front of them. Calvin, at the end of his commentary on this section of Scripture, includes a prayer which I think captures well what I've been trying to get at. He says this, and this is his prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that though we daily in various ways violate the covenant which you have been pleased to make with us in your only begotten Son, we may not yet be dealt with according to what our defection, yet the many defections by which we daily provoke your anger against us do fully deserve. But suffer and bear with us kindly, and at the same time strengthen us that we may persevere in the truth and perform to the end the pledge we have given to you and which you require from us in our baptism. Right, The pledge that we've made to God to be faithful to him. Right, Do not divorce the Lord. Do not divorce the Lord. Your sins will tempt you to divorce God. Your afflictions in the body will tempt you to become bitter toward God, like he's a bitter husband, right? And you would be better off without him, right? Grant, Lord, that we would be faithful to God. Grant that we would never sue God for a divorce. Grant us the strength to accept as good all that comes from his hand as, his good, as a, our good husband. And let us never forget that our husband has died to purify us from all our sins, right? We... We, out merely of, of thanksgiving, ought ever remain both thanks, thankful to him and loyal to him. We should always, in regard to what he's done, remain loyal and thankful. Israel had not, and God is punishing them. Let's pray.